not children, going to Children's Church, to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 23, Matthew the 23rd chapter. Again, for those of you who are visiting us, we've been uh, in the book of Matthew with uh, occasional interruption here and there, but we're up to Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, and we're looking at compassion and judgment uh, this morning. Compassion and judgment. Now, the text is rather brief this morning. We're reading only three verses. The last three verses of chapter 23. And if you were here the last few messages on Matthew, you'll remember that the 23rd chapter opens with some words of admonition for the Pharisees and the scribes and then for the disciples and then continues with our Lord's announcement of seven woes upon the Pharisees. And then at the conclusion of the woes, we have here a section that has to do with our Lord's lament over Jerusalem. This is our scripture reading uh, for this morning. We'll begin reading in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them who are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. And as we see here, the message begins with a great lamentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of the parting wail of rejected love. One of the great expositors has said, adding, The lightning flashes of the seven woes end in a rain of pity and tears. What we obviously see in chapter 23 at the conclusion of this great chapter on the woes and the warnings that we looked at last week, the woes to an unrequited love of a man for a nation. It's been said that great lovers are great weepers and that great workers are great weepers. I think the order should be love, weeping, and working. Uh, It's the love that leads to weeping over failure to respond, and it's that love and that weeping that leads to working. You know, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet, and with good reason, because Jeremiah is the man who said, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eye a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of daughter of my people. I think... I can understand why when the Lord Jesus was here and asked uh, at Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am, the Son uh, of Man? Uh, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The disciples replied, well, some say that uh, you're Elijah and some say you're Jeremiah. Well, it's because of this characteristic of our Lord Jesus, the weeping of a man like Jeremiah. I also think that it reminds us also of the Apostle Paul, who after concluding his eight great chapters on the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, in the ninth chapter, he begins 
with I say the truth, in Christ I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. A great love for a nation, an unrequited love, led to weeping. And perhaps there's been some weeping in your life as well. When you have children or grandchildren or uncles or aunts or relatives that have not received Jesus Christ as their Savior, maybe you've shed some tears over them. And here, this... Uh, passage tells us of the Lord Jesus Christ leads to complete devotion to the best interests of those that he came to whom he came. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. The warning to the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples are over. The woes are completed. Now the Son of God yearns over the ancient theocratic city with great intensity, and then he offers a solemn sentence of abandonment. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And he concludes with the fact that Israel is going to suffer discipline for an indeterminate period of time until they shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, that's the principal burden of this section of the Gospel of Matthew. The lamentation in the first verse is, of course, the thing that strikes us most clearly as we read these verses. I think there's one thing that appears immediately, and we ought to not forget it. And I don't think that we should ever forget it, particularly if we're teachers of the Word of God or if we're simply witnessing to our neighbors. There is no vindictiveness in the prophecy of doom. When you tell someone, whether you're teaching a Sunday school class or like me, preaching the gospel or, or preaching in the, in the jail or the, or the prison, or you're witnessing to your neighbor and you tell them that the result of rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is an eternity in hell, you're not being vindictive. You should not be saying, you know, uh, ha ha, there you are, you're going to hell because of your sin. No, we don't, we don't come across that way. We shouldn't come across that way because that's not the message. There's no vindictiveness in the prophecy of doom. On the other hand, our Lord unflinchingly pronounces it. I don't think we should shy away with it. That doesn't mean uh, we never tell people that the result of their sin is going to be hell. Jesus didn't shy away from that, that subject. He doesn't hesitate to say, Behold, your temple is left unto you desolate. But at the same time, there's no vindictive spirit about him. I think that's an important truth we find here. We don't have a right to... Uh, to speak of the anger of God as if we delight in that anger. Boy, the Lord is going to let you have it, you wicked sinner. <laughs> we don't have a right to, uh, as it seems to me, to speak of the judgment of God with a, 
with a spirit of joy or glee? As far as I can tell in the Bible, when the wrath and the anger of God is spoken of, it's a very serious thing. It's a very solemn thing. But I think you can also catch something of the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of His tears, when God announces the coming judgments that are going to fall upon those who do not believe. After all, He is a God who delights in mercy. And we should speak our tones of judgment in tones of mercy as well. Now notice here, Christ's compassion. Christ's compassion. You might say, well, what shall we say then about this opening statement? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. I think you can sense a tenderness of a broken heart in the words of our Lord. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And the very repetition of these words points to the deep pathos of a king who yearns wistfully. It almost seems as if he's still hoping to win them from the apostasy to to, uh, which they have committed themselves. Reminds me of David of the Old Testament who when he learned of the death of his beloved son Absalom said, Oh, my son Absalom, My son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee. O Absalom, my son, my son. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Or how about when the Lord meant Saul on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Over and over in the Bible, the repetition of words frequently points to tenderness, a pleading. Did you know how Israel is described here? Did you notice that? Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. Of all the descriptions that you might expect of the most religious city on the face of the earth, this would seem to be the least likely. Jerusalem, what does that word even mean? City of peace. That's the most likely meaning we have of the name of Jerusalem, the city of peace. And then what it says about it, how it describes it, how they are killing the prophets and stoning them. This suggests that this is a constant characteristic of this city, this religious city, this most religious city on the earth. Amazing, isn't it? Well, not amazing when we remember that the Lord Jesus said it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. It's in the religious city, it's the religious place that you are most likely to find the crucifixion of the truth of God. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. She's described here kind of, it's really... In the, in the language here, the feminine gender, because the term that is used is feminine, and that it's, if the Lord Jesus is saying, Jerusalem is a murderess, continually draining the blood of the prophets, and now she is on the threshold to follow the draining of the blood of the prophets and strangling of the wise men of the Old Testament by slaying the Son of Man himself. We're coming close to that part of Jesus' time here on earth. But notice here, before we get there, in a few weeks, the Lord willing, 
Notice, first of all, unmerited love. Unmerited love. Let's look first at the compassion of our Lord and the terms that are used here. Very beautiful. How often would I have gathered thy children together? Now, mind you, these are not the words of just a mere man. Suppose I were to stand here and to say, Spooner, oh Spooner, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth her chickens under wing? You'd say, that's ridiculous, preacher. You couldn't say that. To think of one man gathering a city, even as large a city as we have here at Spooner, You see, the very fact that our Lord expresses this is an indication of the fact that he considers himself to be more than just a man. Be preposterous for a mere man to gather the inhabitants of a city together. How could we get everyone together that lives even here in our little town? He speaks of the divine Son of God, and further in the same breath he mentions the gathering of the children together. He speaks of the the sending of the prophets. In verse 34 we read, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men. Now it is God who sends prophets. And then in verse 37 he said, You stone them that are sent unto thee. Stonest them that are sent to thee. So what is he saying? What he is saying is, I am the God of the Old Testament, the one who sends the prophets and the wise men and the mighty man and the apostles, and it is I who would have under my wings the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. How often? Not just once. Uh, In my opinion, I cannot prove this, but in my opinion that's not limited to the times that our Lord in His earthly ministry went to the city of Jerusalem. The pre-existence of the Son of God is the fact of divine revelation. In the Old Testament, He often appeared as an angel of Jehovah, you remember, you'll find various places in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate theophany of the Lord Jesus designed to prepare the nation of Israel for the incarnation. And that's the thing that lies in the back of the theophanies of the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, he ministered to the nation of Israel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that the rock that followed Israel was the Messiah. So, We have Christ in the Old Testament experiences of the nation of Israel. And when he says, how often would I have gathered together under my wings? He's speaking not only simply of his earthly ministry here, but the ministry that preceded his even coming to this world. And then you have reflected upon the figure that he uses here. How often would I have gathered together? thy children together even as a hen gathers her chickens. Now, I'm, I can't say that I'm a country boy. Some of you are country folk. I'm not really a country boy. I lived on the edge of town. I didn't live really in town, but I lived on the edge of town, but I was more city folk than country boy. I didn't really grow up on a farm. I've had some experience on a farm, but I didn't grow up on a farm. I would be much better expounding this if I had actually grown up on a farm. Now, some of you have had chickens. You know what this is all about. I did have an experience of raising some chickens to be butchered. 
you know, to fill my tummy. And it was good eating, by the way. But here, because of the prophets of the Old Testament, seems to me the apostles of the New, and our Lord understands the figures of speech in ways that many of us city boys would have a difficult time comprehending. But I sense that here there's something unusual in our Lord's going to the barnyard for an emblem of tenderness. He says, how often he would have gathered thy children together just like a hen gathers her chickens. I think one commentator said it very well. He must have grown up on a farm. But he said the simile that Jesus uses is unforgettable. A chicken hawk suddenly appears, its wings folded, its eyes concentrating on the farmyard, its ominous claws ready to grasp a chick, and or, or to change the figure, a storm is, is approaching and lightning flashes becomes more frequent and the rumbling of thunder grows louder and electrical discharges follow more closely and raindrops develop into a shower and the shower into a cloudburst. In either case, what happens is that an anxious and commanding cluck, cluck, cluck. Uh, that's actually what he wrote. I know that that's not the way they sound, but that's what he wrote. I'm not going to imitate a chicken for you this morning. But the hen calls her chicks and conceals them under her protecting wing and rushes to a place of shelter. And that's what the Lord has in mind here. Now you know the thing that's striking about this is that it would seem to suggest that what Israel really was thinking in is that these threats of judgment that were to come were things that were just empty. There were for them no chickens, no hawks, no eagles about. But the Roman legions were not far away from the city of Jerusalem in time. And if you remember your ancient history, you know that the emblem of the Romans was the eagle. It belongs to the same family as a hawk. It was not but just a few years after this that the Romans did come. And the chicken hawk did come. And the little chickens exposed suffered ultimate judgment and they were sent to the four corners of the earth. An unmerited love is shown here by the compassion of Christ. Secondly, an unmet desire in spite of his compassion and his desire, they refused his approaches of love and life. The words, how often? Not just once, but that which was evident throughout the earthly ministry of our Lord and preceded that time throughout Israel's history. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not? Here we find the desire of Jesus Christ. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The divine desire for, was for Israel to come to him and they spurned him continually. But he is God. Could he not conquer their unwillingness and bring them together? We talked about this this morning in, in Sunday school. Couldn't God just wiped out Canaan and let the children of Israel come in? Couldn't God just have done away with their unwillingness and brought them? Is that the way God did it in your life? 
No, he gave you a choice. You're going to receive him or you're going to reject him. You're going to obey him or you're going to disobey him. And he did all that for the uh, does that for all that would come to him. He speaks not of his degrees at this point, but his desire. Not his decrees, but his desire. The reference here is to the divine wish, not to the divine purpose. God's will of purpose is always carried out. His will of desire often, though, does not come through because of the free will of men not to yield. We see this worked out for us throughout Scripture. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. In Matthew eleven twenty-seven, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the, fa- the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. These verses speak of God's will of purpose. It's that which always comes to pass, his decreed will. But in our text, we find here God's will of desire, which does not yet always come to pass on earth as it does in heaven. And so we find our Lord teaching us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every imitation of Christ calling the weary and the heavy laden to come to him, at a minimum, is his will of desire. So what do you... We have in this passage, so full of compassion and divine mystery, we discover that the eternal ruin of the lost is not due to the lack of divine compassion or even a lack of divine desire. It's due to the unwillingness of the human heart. And what we find is not a weakness on the part of Christ since any that would come to him come by his power and by his grace. Instead, we find the obstinacy of the human heart. Men so refuse to come to him that the only supernatural work of divine grace can change his disposition so that he willingly comes. Notice not only Christ's compassion, but we notice man's disposition. We've already hinted at that. Let us consider this as we probe Man's disposition. How often I wanted Christ's laments, and ye would not. God had come among them and desired to gather these rebels to himself in a loving, securing embrace of divine love, but they wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Think of it. God, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, walked among them, revealed himself through his holy life and his miracles, his message of the kingdom, and even the ironic testimony of the demons, and ye would not. Though you saw so much and you heard so much and even looked into the eyes of Jesus Christ, you were unwilling to come to him. What does this tell us about our own hearts apart from God's grace? Well, notice, first of all, the resistance to God's message. Can anyone place the blame upon God for them being in hell? Is it God's fault that there are people in hell today? It's only the false, devilish, inspired understanding of God's sovereignty that would come to that conclusion. 
In the same way, it's equally false and devilish understanding of man's responsibility to repent and believe the good news of Christ that would give himself even the slightest credit for making it to heaven. Consider, again, our text here. What did these people, these religious people, do when God sent them messengers? What did these people do? Jesus called them the ones who killed the prophets and stoned these divine emissaries and are sent to deliver the good news. Every step of the way, man is resistant to the message of the gospel. Do we even have to be reminded of this in our own day? This is taking place not only in the Middle Eastern Muslim countries, but right here in America. Young people want to read the Bible. They want to talk about God in their classrooms and at their graduations. And they're met with resistance. They're not carrying bombs or knives or guns to school. They're not selling dope or peddling pornography to their fellow students. They're not orchestrating a riot against the government. They're simply speaking about Jesus Christ to their fellow students. And the government comes after them and they're being disciplined for praying and talking about Jesus Christ to their fellow students. We see the resistance to God's message right in the day in which we live. And though the First Amendment of our nation's Constitution guarantees both freedom of religion and freedom of speech, do we really have that in our nation when it comes to openly speaking the gospel? Certainly we have more freedom than most other countries. And yet some would consider the gospel message to be filled with hate because we speak the truth about men's sins and about eternal judgment. They would say, when you go to witness to somebody and tell them that they're a sinner and that they're bound for hell, that's hate speech. when we know that that's the most loving thing we could possibly tell them. Others forbid gospel discussions in the workplace or in a school, on the school grounds or even in public facilities. Don't blame the government for that. It's really not the government's fault. You know, we like to blame a lot on the government. But what's the government made of? The fault lies in the human heart. The unwillingness of men to hear the gospel, and it has brought on an anti-gospel action across our globe. It's not a governmental thing, per se. It's a human rebellion thing against God. Secondly, there's defiant. they were defiant against God's offer. What Jesus describes is not human neutrality toward God when he says, and ye would not. That goes right to the heart, exposing a disposition that stands in defiance against God. It's a word revealing the human desire of unwillingness to receive Christ as Lord and to rely upon his death and resurrection for standing before God. The defiance is centered in the human will. We hear so much in our day about man's free will. Think about it for just a moment. Maybe that could be a misnomer. 
If his will were truly free, then man would have a disposition toward God. He would not need God's grace to enable him to believe the gospel. He would just naturally be inclined to it. He would be an initiator of a salvation because of his free will would be considered what God has done through Christ and what he offered in salvation. So without the help of grace, he would believe. He could, on his own accord, make himself a Christian. But we know that's not true. You cannot make yourself a Christian. It's only by the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Our Lord exposed the problem of the hearts of most spiritual men in Israel, and in doing so, he exposed even every heart, and he would not. Don't blame God for your lostness, if that's your condition this morning. If, you're, if you were there, you would have followed keenly after your own disposition of heart and mind. The human will is desperately set against God, and it's a great devourer and destroyer of thousands of good intentions and emotions which never come to anything permanent because the will is acting in opposition to that which is right and true. It's not that unconverted people among us do not consider themselves unwilling to come to Christ and be saved. They think that they're doing quite well right now. How many times have you heard people say, well, I'm, I'm okay, I'm doing just fine. Nothing's happened to me yet. So you feel the need of Christ due to recognizing your own desperate heart condition, then grace comes to you to incline your heart to follow him. Christ is compassionate, though men are unwilling and headstrong, and it only through his grace unites us to Christ because of the unwillingness of our hearts. Notice thirdly the Christ's declaration. The twofold nature of Christ's declaration here in light of the unwillingness of Israel to turn to him. A warning, and then there's hope. First of all, notice the warning of desolation. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Was he just blowing smoke, as we say? Less than 40 years from that moment, Jerusalem would be leveled to the ground. It's people dead from the burning, the sword, and the famine. Only a small remnant would be left. What Vespasian started in conquering Israel, his son Titus completed. But the most ruthless actions took place within as three factions inside the walls of Jerusalem fought for control of the city. They killed one another while Titus built siege walls around the city. They burned their own grain stocks, ensuring starvation to exert power over each other. So powerful was their hunger and the roaming uh, brigades in that city that break into the houses and would steal food from children and dashing them to the floor with no compassion. And Josephus, the ancient historian, had been a Jewish general and had been accepted to join Vespasian and Titus, and he saw what was happening with his own eyes. His descriptions defy belief. They're not willing uh, or that they had been an eyewitness account. You can hardly believe that he would actually 
see these things himself, but he wrote this. He said, to put it briefly, no other city ever endured such miseries. Nor since the world began has there been a generation more prolific in crime. Titus was sickened by the stench of rotting bodies thrown out by their own people. And by the time that Titus entered the city, he found piles of corpses that his men had to walk on to access Jerusalem's buildings. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. By the way, if you ever haven't read that part of history, it's an interesting part to read. You probably didn't get that in your history class in school. But it's there. What his hearers, that is, Christ's hearers, thought impossible became true. The temporal desolation only began a far worse eternal desolation. But notice also the confession of triumph. The lament ends in triumph. He says here in verse 39, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Our Lord looked ahead to the time of his return in triumph. In that day every eye would see him, every knee would bow, and every tongue would confess that he is Lord of all. And that day will come when all will bless the Lord. Some will do so gladly as the followers of Christ, Others will do so as defeated adversaries of Christ. One or the other, each one of us one day is going to exalt the name of the Lord. Some in an ultimate triumph of the gospel and others in despair of having rejected the eternal king. Now here's the hope that lies in Christ's confession. He is the Lord of all. His kingdom endures forever. And though you may face persecution and opposition for following him now, the day will come when all that will be long forgotten and you will be swept up in a grand procession of triumph. So be encouraged, struggling saint. Even the enemies of the gospel will have to acknowledge the truth one day. And our king, don't be on the wrong side of his triumph. Bless his name as your Lord even now. Let's bow our heads in prayer.